I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. This is the Apostle Paul addressing the church there in Corinth, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. And Paul writes there, Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one who says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul, only servants to whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task? I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. And you are God's field, God's building. By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Good to see you all. It is a joy to be here worshiping with you this morning and spending time in God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But before we look there, I want to put an image in your head. Uh, The image of Lego builders. If you're like me, you loved Legos when you were little, and maybe some of you still do. I found that there are two types of Lego builders in the world. There's the Lego builder who follows the instructions, they get the Death Star, the Lego Death Star, and they divide the Lego pieces into the piles, and then they follow the instructions step by step. 
By the end, they have the Death Star. Then there's others like me who see the instructions as optional. They just kind of go about it, add artistic creativity to it, and then what you get in the end does not look like the Death Star. It might look like some sort of battle station, but it is not the Death Star. In the life of the church, we are tempted to build the church according to our own way. And that temptation is not unique to us. It's not unique to this time period. Paul and the Corinthians dealt with this same temptation themselves. And in our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17, through 17, we see Paul addressing the Corinthian temptation to build the church according to their own standard, according to the wisdom of the world. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians again so that it's fresh in our minds, but I want to set the context first. Corinth was a principal city in the Roman Empire. It was a hub of trade between Rome itself and the eastern part of the empire. Think of it like Los Angeles or New York today. It was a very cosmopolitan place, a very learned place, a busy place. And Acts 18 tells the story of how Paul traveled there and spent at least a year and a half in ministry there, evangelizing both to the Jewish synagogue synagogue and the Greco-Roman Christians. So think of Paul as the church's founding pastor, and the Corinthians have a really good relationship with him. So therefore, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, he's troubled when he receives reports from a group of people known as Chloe's people that there's division and infighting in the church. And then he also mentions in 1 Corinthians 7.1 that the Corinthians themselves had written a letter to him asking for advice about the life of the church. So 1 Corinthians is his response to both of those two concerns. And he sets out his, his thesis in 1 Corinthians 1.10, that the aim of his letter is to heal the divisions in the church and bring unity to a divided church. The first three chapters are him setting up how he's going to address that very specifically in the life of the church. But chapters 1 through 3 is the broad picture. And he says in chapters 1 and 2 that he focuses on Christ and him crucified. That Christ crucified and risen from the dead is the only power to bring unity to the church. And it's completely unexpected for his culture, for both Jewish listeners and Greco-Roman listeners. But he understands that the cross is the power of God. He also says that the Holy Spirit is that which gives us the understanding of the message of the cross and what Christ did there. The Holy Spirit gives Christ's mind to us and brings about reconciliation. So then in chapter 3, he changes his tone and he begins to address the issues at hand. And he marvels that the congregation has failed to grow up. They're still infants. They haven't grown up into mature adults and they are building the church like Jews, and they're building the church like Greco-Romans. But they're not building the church like spiritual, Holy Spirit-led Christians. And that leads us to today's passage, where Paul talks about how God builds his church, or his temple. 
In this passage, we're going to ask one main question that's going to guide us through it. How does God build his temple? How does God build his temple? And we're going to see, as we ask that question of the passage, that God builds his temple in three ways. He builds his temple by dwelling in the building. He builds his temple by equipping the builders. And he dwells in his temple by testing the structure. From that, we're going to conclude that God builds his temple, so we must build it his way, because he is the builder. So now let's read again 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17, and as we read, remember that this is God's word. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So, look at Paul's words while asking yourself, how does God build his temple? It's important to recognize that this is one long metaphor, a metaphor that begins in verse 9 and ends in verse 17. It's self-contained. And in this metaphor, he compares God's people to a field and to a building. And the idea behind both of those words is the idea or the imagery of growth, of moving towards completion. A field is like a farmer's field where you sow seeds, you water, you wait for the plants to grow and produce fruit. And a building here, it can mean the physical structure, but it can also mean like a building project. So I am building a building. They are building over there. And Paul gives those two images to depict growth toward a mature goal. Just like Paul called the Corinthians infants in Christ in 3, 1 through 3, and he expects them to become mature adults in Christ, he expects the community to grow into a harvested field and grow into a completed building project. But then he drops the field metaphor. He picks up the building metaphor and goes with it all the way through verse 17. He says that he was a skilled master builder who worked on this building and that the Corinthians themselves are workers who build upon the foundation that he himself laid. And then so he uses construction metaphors and analogy all the way through, and you're just thinking it's a building project. Then in verse 16, he unveils the nature of this very special building project. 
He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This building project is a temple building project. That's what they've been working on this whole time. God's temple. And the you there, it's not a singular you. It's y'all. Y'all are the temple. The church community, the church gathered, the church body, y'all are God's temple. And this is not an ordinary Greco-Roman temple. This is more like God's temple from the Old Testament. Paul has in mind Solomon's temple, the great structure in Jerusalem, where God's presence was among his people on earth. And the Old Testament is quite clear that your God is a holy God who requires a holy temple. God placed complex sacrificial laws and purity systems in his word so that God's people could approach their holy God safely so that he could safely dwell among them. In order for an Israelite to approach God, they had to go through ceremonies, and they had to bring sacrificial gifts to the temple before they could enter. Otherwise, God's holiness struck them down as sinful, incomplete creatures. Think of Leviticus 10, when Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, and fire came out and consumed them. Think also of 2 Samuel 6 when Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant to prevent it from falling into mud. And he died because he had not taken the proper precautions. Because mud is, it was better for the Ark of the Covenant to fall into mud than for Uzzah to touch the Ark. God destroys unholy things that enter the temple in which he dwells. And that is what Paul means when he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That destroy includes uh, sacrilege, sacrilegious destruction. And that idea in and of itself would not have been unusual to the Corinthians. They were Jews, they were Greeks, they were Romans. They knew that if you went before God without taking the proper precautions, a holy person or even a holy object would destroy you that that's normal in the ancient world you would expect that what is unusual in paul's metaphor is that the building project the temple is incomplete this is an incomplete temple in verses 10 through 15 paul and the corinthian christians are building the church temple they're working on it they're constructing it but in verse 16 he says God's spirit already dwells in that temple. And that's unlike anything the Greeks, the Romans, or the Jews would have experienced. Think of the Old Testament patterns in Exodus 40, where God only dwelt in the tabernacle until after it was fully complete and fully purified. And then in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5-7, through when they consecrated Solomon's temple... God's presence did not appear in the temple until after it was done, after it was consecrated. But here, a holy God who deserves a complete temple dwells in an incomplete temple, a temple that is not yet done. 
Even as the workers are engaged in the messy process of building and laboring, God is there. Imagine if you decided to build a house, and in the middle of the building project, you said, I'm moving in. I'm going to wake up, and I'll be covered in sawdust. I might have to pull out uh, construction equipment from this little closet here. I might scrape sawdust off of my Cheerios in the morning. I might change my baby's diaper as two workers are arguing at each other in the corner. You have to avoid exposed nails as you walk to your bed to sleep. That's the picture that Paul is painting. Your holy God dwells in his church temple, even though the church is incomplete, even though the church is messy, and even though the church is sometimes ugly. God dwells there. The church is that way because we are incomplete and we are a mess, but God loves you. Christ makes you holy even while you are incomplete, and he is the foundation of God's temple. God dwells in his temple, the church, even though it is not yet what it will be in glory. So we've asked the question, how does God build his temple? Well, he builds his temple by dwelling in it. God builds his temple by dwelling in his temple. Maybe you find yourself wishing that you or your church body were holier than you actually are. And perhaps you're discouraged by the sin in yourself or the sin in your body. Take heart. Take heart from Paul's words. God is still here. God still loves you and is pleased to dwell with you, even though you're a messy construction project. God does not require you or the church to be a certain level of sanctification before he dwells in you. And that is good news. So don't despair that you're not a perfect church yet. And don't despair that the global church is not perfect yet. At the same time, don't rest. Don't rest because there's so much work to do. There's so much building to do. So get involved in the ministries of the church if you are not involved yet. And if you don't know how to contribute to the growth and construction of the temple, ask someone. People need help, and I'm, I guarantee that if you ask someone, they'll be like, oh, I know how your gifts can help this body. And if you're involved in church ministry, keep going. Keep working. Keep building. And when people come up and want to help build, it's going to change things. It might change how you work, how you're used to doing things, but that's okay. It's okay if it changes because God's temple work is never done. You don't build a roof the same way you build a wall. Pray and ask for God's wisdom as you keep building. The reality of God's presence in the church temple has profound consequences for you, Grace Bible. As you build, you do not build alone. The Holy Spirit is here empowering you as you build. The Holy Spirit is here when you prepare food on Wednesday night. The Holy Spirit is there giving power to you when you take out the trash, when you rock babies in nursery, even when you're at home preparing for church. The Holy Spirit is with you. He empowers you even now. At the same time, take a sober look at yourselves. 
Remember the context of Paul's temple passage. He was talking to a church that was divided on a whole host of issues, whole host of cultural ideas. And as a result, there was infighting in the congregation. So take that context and apply it to your own. When you disagree with another church member, remember that God is there watching you. God is there watching you in your disagreement. So when you disagree, disagree as if you were standing before God's throne. Conduct your behavior as if the Holy Spirit is pleased. Is he pleased in your manner of disagreement? Even in your disagreement, are you contributing to the growth in Christ of the other person with whom you disagree? I often fail at this. And if you're like me, I suspect you do too. So we need grace. We need grace for this messy construction project. And what does that grace look like? How does God build his temple with sinful people? We have already seen that God builds his temple by dwelling in it. So let's keep asking the question, how does God build his temple as we continue to study the passage? Look with me at verses 10 through 11. Paul writes, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul identifies Jesus Christ as the only foundation to this temple project. And Jesus is the foundation in two ways. First, the gospel message of Christ is that which establishes the church. In verse 10, Paul describes himself as an apostle, as laying the foundation when he was in Corinth and preaching. The message of Christ established the church, the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And we see that in Acts 18. Acts 18 tells that story. By saying things to people about Jesus on purpose, Paul establishes the church. And that's what he means by laying a foundation. But not only is the gospel message a foundation, Christ himself, the person of Christ, is the foundation of his church. And that's why it's called his body. He is the foundation of the church. Note that in verse 11, Paul doesn't say that he laid that foundation. He says that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. That's a passive. So a passive verb, the difference is I lay the foundation. That's active. The foundation was laid. That's passive. And this is a divine passive, meaning that God is the one who laid that foundation. He's the one who gave Christ to the church. God's action is operative in the background. He gives grace to Paul. He gives Paul the message. He gives the church Christ. When Jesus died and laid, and when Jesus died and God raised him from the dead, that was God giving Christ to the church and establishing the church, laying the foundation. Paul writes that the that Christ is the foundation in 1 Corinthians 1.23 and 1 Corinthians 1.30 when he connects the power of God and the wisdom of God to Christ. 
he writes in 130, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus binds the church together because he himself is the foundation of the church. It's amazing to see how Paul, in describing the building of the temple, everything comes back to God. God is in the temple. He's dwelling in it. He's operative in the background as the builders work, giving the message, giving grace, giving the person of Christ. God is the one who builds the temple and gives what gives to the builders what they need. Not only does God give Christ to the church and grace to the worker, but he also limits the message of the church. He limits the scope of the church's mission. Look again at verses 10 through 11. Paul says, Someone else is building upon the foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says that each one should take care how they build. Each one. Because every person is a builder. You, Grace Bible, are building on the foundation of Christ. And Christ is the only foundation. And in verse 11, he says that, Paul says that there is no other foundation on which you can build. Christ alone is the foundation of the church. Do you see the pattern? God alone is behind every aspect of the construction process of building the temple. And he's the one who is providing for the builders. So, how does God build the temple? He equips the workers. When I was five years old, I caught my first fish, and I was ecstatic when I caught that little brook trout in Colorado. Uh, but my grandfather was the one who did everything. He was the one who drove me to the lake. My grandfather was the one who got out the canoe, put me in the canoe, paddled me to the right spot in the lake. He got out his rods. He put the line through the rods, tied the hook, got the worms which he bought, put the worm on the hook, cast the rod for me in the spot, and he said, just leave it there. Don't move until I say, set the hook. So I'm I'm sitting there, I'm watching intently, and the bobber starts going down. And I'm wanting to set it, and he says, don't set it, don't set it. And then it goes down. He says, set the hook, so I set it, and I reel, 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 reel. And there it is, my first fish that I caught. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That was my grandfather. I just reeled it in. According to Paul, God builds his church by equipping the workers. He builds the church by saving the workers in Christ. He gives Christ to the church. He gives grace to the workers for the task that he's called them to do. And he gives them the task of building on the foundation that he has already provided. God equips the workers. So use the tools that God gives you. Use the tools that God gives you. The Bible is very clear what those tools are. The means of grace, words, sacraments, and prayer. Words, sacraments, and prayer. That is the mission of the church. That is the tools that God gives you to build upon the foundation of Christ. When I went fishing, my grandfather gave me the tools I needed to fish. And God gives you the the tools to build his temple. 
words, sacraments, and prayer. And it's so tempting to use other tools that the world provides. It's so tempting to think, if I just frame it the right way, or if I just speak the right way, if I just act in just the perfect way, I can build the church. It's also very tempting to use the main tool that the world says is the panacea to all our ills. Politics. The world is telling you that politics is the answer to all your problems, to all the problems of the world. And politics is good. God uses politics to restrain the evil one and establish justice in the world. But that is not the tool that he gives to the church. Politics, they're not, it's not the tool that God gives the church. The kingdom is not of this world, and God builds his kingdom through words, sacraments, and prayer, through the gospel. So when it comes to ministry in the church, reject the tools that the wisdom of the world says you need, and embrace the tools that God already gives you. In using the tools of words, sacraments, and prayer, continue to build upon the one foundation of Christ. Continue to build on the one foundation of Christ. And you do that by acting like Christ to one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, speaking grace to one another, helping one another when they need help, bearing with one another when one when that other person has different opinions than you, forgiving one another when you wound each other. And finally, check your priorities. Check your priorities by asking yourself, is Christ my one foundation? Is Christ my one foundation? Have I replaced Christ with another foundation? Maybe my favorite theologian, be it R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Nancy Guthrie. Have I replaced Christ? Or is it my favorite idea? Have I replaced Christ with my favorite idea or my politics. Check yourself against Christ. Check your priorities against the word. And when your favorite Christian departs from the scripture, stick with scripture. When your favorite theologian is critiqued by scripture and by others in the church, listen and see if that critique stands. And pray that God would give you both the wisdom and the humility to accept it when it happens. All scripture is about Christ, according to Luke 24. Cleave to Christ. So, according to Paul, how does God build his temple? God builds the temple by dwelling in the building and equipping the builders. God builds his temple by equipping the builders. Yet what happens when the builders use tools that God doesn't give them? What happens when the builders like other tools? Well, let's continue asking the passage, how does God build his temple? Look with me at verses 12 through 15. Paul writes, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. In verse 13, your Bible probably capitalizes day, because day refers to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the day when God returns and judges the world. It's frequently mentioned in the Old Testament prophets and then taken up again in the New Testament to refer to when Christ himself returns. In Matthew 24, Jesus applies the day of the Lord to himself and his return. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, 7 through 8, Paul mentions the day of the Lord as the day when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. And then 2 Peter 3 gives us a good description of what the day of the Lord is and what it'll look like. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to what the Apostle Peter says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Paul and Peter are talking about the same day, the day of the Lord, when Christ returns in fire and judges and purifies the new heavens and the new earth. In light of the impending day of the Lord, Paul tells the Corinthian builders to build on the foundation of Christ with inflammable building material. Building material that will not burn up when Christ returns. Notice the list of material he suggests. Gold, silver, precious stones, those are inflammable. Wood, hay, straw, those are highly flammable. They will catch on fire. So what determines in Paul's mind whether the the building material that you use is flammable or inflammable? Paul's already given us the answer in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-9 and 1 Corinthians 3, 18-22. That which is flammable building material is building material that comes from the world. It is boastful, it is self-centered, it is proud, and it is respected by the world. All that will burn away at Christ's return. But the inflammable building material, that which will not be consumed when Christ returns, is that which comes from the wisdom of the cross. It's ministry that is foolish according to the world. It is meek, humble. It is sacrificial. It imitates Jesus when he himself was on earth in his lifetime. In 1 Corinthians 12-14, through 14, later, after Paul addresses the manifold ethical issues in Corinth, he says that that building material is used to build one another up in Christ. Inflammable building material is that which builds Christ in one another. And that belongs to God's temple. Christ-likeness belongs to God's temple. And according to Paul, the day of the Lord reveals what type of building material will be used. The day of the Lord will come with fire and will burn away the dross on the temple. Everything that does not truly belong to the temple, the fire will burn away. And I want you to draw, I want to draw your attention to the work that Paul describes in verses 13 through 15. This work is not the same as the flammable material or the inflammable building material. The work is the product 
of the building material used. The work is the product of the material. And Paul's not talking about works of the law here, nor is he specifically talking about good works done in faith. I want to suggest that the work here means other Christians who are built up in Christ. The work means other Christians built up in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 1-5 uses the same temple metaphor as Paul, and he also uses that spiritual milk language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3. So I think that Peter gives us insight into the nature of the work that Paul talks about. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that's by, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The work that makes up Paul's temple is the living stones that make up Peter's temple. It's the same thing, the Christian. The Christian makes up God's temple. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul refers to the Corinthians themselves as workmanship, as his own workmanship. So the work here is another Christian. When Jesus returns, the fire of judgment either consumes or purifies people. Whether or not they are consumed depends on whether or not they had faith in Christ and trust in him in salvation. And now that you know that work means person, look again at verses 14 through 15. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. God tests the work that goes into the temple structure. God tests the temple structure itself. And he's, Paul here is not talking about salvation by works. Paul is talking about the reward that comes with proper building. The builders saved by grace through faith in Christ. And if you notice... In this passage, the builder who does not build well still appears before Christ. He still gets to be with Christ in the last day. So this is so Paul's talking about heavenly rewards here. And at the end of verse 15, Paul says that he himself, meaning the poor worker, will be saved but only as through fire. And he says that because every Christian will pass through the fire. Every Christian will pass through the fire, but for the Christian, it's the fire of purification, where the flammable building material gets burned away from us, and we look more like Christ. Only that which is Christ remains at the day of the Lord. But those who do not belong to God's temple will be cast out. So how does God build his temple? Not only does God build his temple by dwelling in the temple— and providing for the workers, he tests the structure. God builds his temple by testing the structure. Now, those of you who are students, who were students at one point, or are currently students, think of tests. And I know this because I just emerged from a round of testing. When you have a hard test, you study better. 
you know that the hard test is coming, so you pay attention to the work, and you go through the test, and you've learned. You've grown as a student. But if you have an easy test, and you know beforehand that it's an easy test, just let it slide. Just let the stuff slide, and you don't actually retain the information. Hard tests are helpful in making us grow. According to 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17, God tests the temple structure. And he tests the structure to find what does not belong to his holy temple. Flammable or inflammable material is tested, and that which is not Christ is purged from the temple. And then the builders are rewarded according to the manner of their building. If they worked in a way and ministered to others in such a way that contributed to the growth of Christ in them, then they receive a a reward. If the builder ministers in such a way that they don't contribute to to the growth of Christ in them, or does so in a way that matches the ways of the world, then they don't receive that heavenly reward. They lose out when the temple is tested. So, brothers and sisters, when you minister to one another, remember that you are ministering to a living stone that will endure in the day of the Lord. Remember that that person is going to be there forever, and how you minister to them matters. How you minister to other Christians matter, because you are either contributing to the growth of Christ in them, or you're preventing it. So you contribute to your brother's or sister's growth in Christ by treating them like living stones. And you do that, as Paul says in Philippians 2 through 3, by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and by counting others as greater than yourself. Christ gave his life for your brothers and sisters, for those other living stones. So their lives matter. Their lives are important. Treat their lives like they are worthy of Christ's sacrifice. You also contribute to your brother or sister's growth in Christ by speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Now, that's a hard thing, to speak the truth and to do it in love. Some of you might be really good at speaking the truth, but not doing it in love. You speak the truth in a way that is hurtful to the other person. Now, others are really good at loving, but not really good at speaking the truth. You're really good at affirming the other person, but not helping grow Christ in them by confronting sin. And that is really hard to do, to speak the truth in love. So, if you're really good at speaking the truth, but not doing it in love, go to someone who you know in this body is good at loving. Go be discipled by someone who is really good at being loving and is gentle and kind so that you can speak the truth in love. On the other hand, if you're really good at loving and being affirming and gentle, but find speaking the truth to be a challenge, go find someone who's really good at speaking the truth. Learn from them so that you yourself can speak the truth when you need to. Speak the truth in love and do it together 
because iron sharpens iron, or in this case, living stones sharpen living stones. Remember that your ministry has eternal significance. What you say and do to your brothers and sisters at GBC matters, and God will test what you have done. So take it seriously. Take your life together seriously. And in your ministry, don't, don't give it the dregs, the leftovers of the work from your, the, the work week. But give it as an offering to God that matters, that matters to the other person and builds them up. Finally, if you are in Christ, rest in his finished work as you minister. Rest in his finished work because Christ will get those other living stones through this life. He will save his people. Minister resting. Know that it's not up to you. It's up to the builder who's building. And then finally, if you are here today and you haven't put your trust in Christ, heed Paul's words. Because Christ is coming. Christ is coming and he will test the temple. Are you placing your trust in him? If you haven't, please do. And then you can enter into God's presence with joy. When the pharaohs of ancient Egypt built their magnificent tombs, they took great care in how they built it because they believed that their tombs connected their bodies with their spirits in the afterlife. So they made sure that their tombs were constructed correctly. They hired the best workers, they bought the best building material, and they regularly reviewed the construction process to make sure that it was up to their pharaonic standards. They tested it for flaws and irregularities. And then one day, they died, and they dwelt in their tomb in great magnificence. As we read 1 Corinthians 3, 9-17, through 17, we asked, how does God build this temple? And in some respects, he did it like the pharaohs. He builds his temple by equipping the builders, and he tests the structure. But unlike the pharaohs, he lives here now. He lives here now, even when it's not done. And so we must build his temple the way that God does. Only then will we avoid the rivalries and the factions that the Corinthians face. Will you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for Christ. We ask that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us build in a manner that pleases Christ, that we would put aside our own agendas, that we would put aside our own way of doing things, but that we would build as Christ would have us build, that we would focus on what matters, that we would speak the truth in love, that we would contribute to the growth of Christ in one another. We can only do that with the Holy Spirit, Lord. So would your Holy Spirit empower us today and moving forward. Thank you for giving us the, the helper, even now, who dwells in our midst. We praise you, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.